Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 927. This week on the show, we begin with Eric Longenhagen and Ben Clemens chatting about the latest goings-on in baseball, including the sticky elephant in the room. They discuss the never-ending mystery that is the balk rule, what the Twins and D-backs should be doing this year, and just how busy Eric has been with all the prospect lists. Eric also brings the latest draft updates, including what a nightmare it can be to simply keep all these names straight. And of course, Ben and Eric talk about the nuances of the Sticky Stuff scandal and how we collectively cover it. It's one of those things where like, we should try to be quicker to put it to bet because I agree with people when they're like, yeah, this is bad that this is another smear and that MLB finds a way of like making this worse. They're just like picking their scabs constantly. And yeah, but also that's our incentive in the media, especially like when you're pumping your content through social media is like to lean into that stuff. And that's not the best either. So following that. David Lorla is joined by Zach Bayrudi, broadcaster for the Reno Aces, and Alex Cohen, broadcaster for the Iowa Cubs. The trio began by talking about wild games they've covered in the minors, including Zach's recent series with Reno that involved a 21-16 game. You know, I, I enjoy calling baseball games that are like the two to nothing pitchers duels and, and, you know, getting really into the nitty gritty of the strategy. And I feel like all of that kind of goes out the window in a game like 21 to 16. You know, <laughs> you, you could still talk about the game and it, you know, in proper context, but it's it just it's different. It's just different. They also talk about the lineage of professional broadcasters to go through Pawtucket, Zach getting his call to the big leagues and Alex representing the suburbs on an episode of House Hunters. Finally, Zach and Alex share stories from the road, including particularly sketchy hotels, a story of an unlucky bath, and the inevitable overnight bus breakdown. But yeah, you just watch the sunrise with you know, 35 of your closest friends <laughs> on the side of the road in the middle of Ohio, and you know, then you go on and win five games in four days, so it was pretty special. That's awesome, man. So I've had the bus breakdown for sure. I think we all have, right? Like, I feel like you haven't been in minor league baseball unless you've had the bus breakdown. But before we get started, I must ask you this weekly question. Have you checked out the Fangraphs merch page lately? We have a scorebook t-shirt designed by our very own Luke Hooper that you must take a peek at if you haven't already. And of course, our ad-free memberships are the best way to support and browse the site. If you're still looking for a Father's Day gift, which is on Sunday if you forgot, consider a Fangraphs.com ad-free membership for the baseball-loving dad in your life. Thank you for all of your support. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hello again, listeners. This is Fangraphs lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. It's another Fangraphs audio segment featuring me and the intrepid Ben Clemens. Ben, how's it going? Oh, it's going well. Intrepid. I like that. I just pulled one out. It's <laughs> just like, what's a word to describe Ben that will be cool sounding? But yeah, it's been a while since I've been on the pod because I've been busier than a one-armed traffic cop with a mosquito bite. Just with extended spring and big league stuff and minor league stuff and the swell of college postseason play, so I'm glad to be back on the pod. And you and I haven't spoken in the longest time, so how? What's going on? Uh, not too much. It's yeah, those things are not really <laughs> occupying a lot of my time, but it it still feels like very busy. Just the majors are heating up. There are more stories. There have been a lot of injuries and a lot of yeah. teams kind of changing places in the standings and. It's promising to be an interesting trade deadline, not least because there are going to be some interesting prospects to get traded. So kind of both sides are uh, working together at the same time. Yeah, we are like, I guess we're about a month and a half away from the deadline. What are what are your thoughts on the deadline 
Cause I know I've started to turn my attention toward that stuff too. Like got to do a 40 man crunch piece at some point soon for sure. Uh, and that, that part of it always interests me, but what are, what are some of the things trade deadline wise that you kind of have your eye on this, this far out? I am really interested to see what the twins do. I think mm. they're the, they're the team that I'll be most curious to observe because if you're really thinking about it from a bloodless, what's the highest number of World Series we can be expected to win over the next, you know, 20 years, present valued somehow, they should be selling everything that's on a one-year deal and a lot of guys that are on two-year deals. Like, they're just not going to make the playoffs. It's not really possible at this point. They're 26 and 41. It's too late in the season. This is This is well past the Nationals being bad in the middle of May. And it's moved on into they're just not going to make the playoffs. They're 16 games back of the White Sox. And so what they choose to do with a lot of expiring contracts, I mean, Nelson Cruz, who we think of as just kind of on the twins until he decides to retire, is a free agent after this year. Yep. And they could they could trade him and then try to re-sign him this offseason. Yeah, him, Andrelton Simmons, Michael Pineda, Jay Happ, Hansel Robles, Matt Shoemaker. And then how do you feel about the guys who are going to be ARB 3, which has some of the bigger names, including Jose Barrios and Byron Buxton. Would you even be open to moving either of those two guys? Yeah, I think so. I, I think you have to think about it if you can get... Well, it depends what return you get. If you're getting a, a low A guy who's interesting, no. I don't think it makes sense. But if you could get... Uh, one example that I've seen kind of talked about is, wouldn't the Blue Jays be a great fit for Barrios? And yes. isn't Nate Pearson available? <laughs> Uh, and he might be and if you're the twins and you can get Nate Pearson you can maybe convince yourself that it's not a huge downgrade next year and that you're picking up extra years that way it is sort of like the Patino for Snell like allegory right where you're like yeah we're getting an arm back in this deal that might be as good as the guy we're giving up right or at least not a huge step down so yeah I've been kind of surprised that the struggles that he's had. I still think in terms of where he lines up on the continuum that if he ends up in the bullpen, then it's just elite, like it's just elite relief. So he still belongs close to where he is. Like that's, I think that's sort of baked in. It should be baked into most pitchers, uh, like projections basically from like a scouty standpoint is just right. this possibility, especially a guy like this, you know, some of his injury stuff in the past was more, freakish traumatic it's like you know comebackers off of this and that not necessarily all arm related but yeah the other thing about the deadline that i think will be interesting is how teams anticipate i can't believe it's already this podcast is going to take a dark turn how teams anticipate and then strategically work around the likelihood of a work stoppage that like you know if you're getting if you're trading for jose barrios and he's going to be a free agent after 2022 but there's not going to be a 2022 season or the 2022 season is going to be short and volatile in the way that the 2020 season was from like a who makes it in standpoint. Or do you really want to flip long-term assets for for someone who's only going to help you for maybe the next six months, even if they're – or not the next six months, the next couple of months, even if they're on a two-year deal or whatever? Like I think that that thinking is going to factor in as well. And then, uh, yeah, I think that some of the big – blockbuster deals we've seen lately, not necessarily ahead of the trade deadlines, have been more quantity, not quantity over quality, but definitely quantity in a way that diversifies risk among the prospect package that you're getting back. Like the Clevenger trade. 
like the Clevenger trade, like the uh, like the Lindor trade. Yeah, where it was like here are some of these here are two recently drafted high schoolers, and uh, no doubt you know f- perfectly fine big league shortstop in Andres Jimenez who's young and has a half decade of team control left. Like it wasn't the Francisco Mejia for Brad Hand trade where you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Right. And a lot of times it is going to involve high schoolers because high schoolers and, and teenage Latin American players are the ones more likely to have a longer 40-man timeline, which like you know touches on the 40-man crunch thing that I I mentioned earlier, which is that like you want a bunch of players back. You can't have... You can't have them forcing you to make decisions on other players who are near the big leagues. Like you can't have them creating pressure on your forty man such that you're going to lose guys for right. nothing or be leveraged into into losing them for less. So yeah, I think some of the uh, is there another is there another team you're looking at is like what about the Diamondbacks? What do we if we're looking at the D backs? I've been in to see them a bunch lately because like Otani through here and Degrom and Stroman through here, so I've like been in there to see them a bunch. How many boxes have you seen in the last week? How many have you seen and how many have you seen called? <laughs> I was definitely there. I mean, I saw the block that Otani had that was like, you Those know. Those two in a row were absurd. I could watch a video of the second one a hundred times and never know what he did to actually block. Yeah, or rather, I know what they said he did, but I could watch a video of that and a different Otani delivery a hundred times and I could never tell the difference. This is the problem with um, – this happened with a Mark Stroman and Josh Rojas getting in, in a disagreement at one of the games I was attending uh, and is less relevant to what I'm about to say. But like MLB needs a way of having the umpires communicate verbally with the fans like the NFL does and like the NBA has started to do more recently where like the ref looks into the camera and says, hey, we reviewed the play. It's only going to be a common foul. It's not a flagrant foul. You know, the Grizzlies have possession at half court or whatever it is. Like, there needs to be a thing that they say, because the one Otani balk was so... I, I didn't know what happened. Like, I, I assumed that a balk was called because of the way the runner movement, like, happened after the call, but because he didn't balk in a way that seemed obvious to me, I didn't yeah. know that a balk was called, you know? Like, I was like, wait, right. did they... So, there are a lot of instances like that where people in the stands no matter how attentive they are to the game or how intense or casual a fan they are, just people don't have any idea what the hell's going on. It's at the point where like, you know, if someone sitting next to me asked me what the hell just happened, I wouldn't even know what to tell them. I'd be like, ah, yeah, I don't know. I know I, you know, you've come to this game with me and I, I do this for a living, but like, <laughs> I don't know what just happened. And so that's a problem that I think needs to be, it's, there's an easy fix for that. It's just like put a mic on the ump and... Just have Joe West be like, yeah, I called the block because he didn't stop. Right. And that's it. That would be fine. To get back to the earlier point of this, I think the D-backs just have a lot of a lot of guys that they're, they can look to move on from who are on one-year contracts. The question is going to become more, what do they do about some of the kind of middle-term pieces they have? Like Merrill Kelly has a team option for next year, so he's controllable for two years. But... I think some teams would like to have Merrill Kelly as a fifth starter this year. And do we really think the Diamondbacks should be pushing all their chips in for next year? It's hard to say. I think that I mean, so much, so much of what's going on there is not anyone's fault. Like it's random, horrible stuff. Like yeah, 
the I think health... that they designed the team pretty well and just got unlucky in several ways. Right. Like Gallon, Hurt, Clippard, Asdrubal Cabrera, uh, Ketel Marte missed a lot of time with the hamstring stuff. He's their best player. Uh, you know, Zach Gallon is a, is a sneaky Cy Young candidate when he's healthy. The Giants went off and that didn't help them. Right. Like there's a lot of stuff like Corbin Carroll separated his shoulder and is done for the year. Christian Robinson uh, hit a cop uh, last year and can't come over and play. Like there's just a whole bunch of random stuff that's going on too. Bumgarner hasn't been pitching. Right. He's got shoulder stuff now too. Yeah. The the GM's wife is not well. The industry found out that they weren't going to pick up Starling Marte's option and – they went from flipping a comp round high school arm and a top 100 prospect shortstop in Leover Piguero for Marte to getting like a fringe 40 man depth arm in Humberto Mejia from the Marlins, Caleb Smith, who hasn't bounced back, and like a, a arm strength lottery ticket, Frias. Luis, like, it's just not, it's just been a random. I think that like Kelly, some of the pitching I think you retain. I think that's more likely to have value year over year, and I think that it's imperative that they have a a less embarrassing product on the field next year, right? Uh, for the sake of everybody's job, and Merrill Kelly is a perfectly fine back of the rotation piece, and I don't know they don't have other guys like that just kind of sitting around. And as much as I like a lot of the college pitching that they have in the system. Next year doesn't feel like the year that Ryan Nelson and Slade Ciccone and, you know, Tommy Henry are going to be, like, ready the whole year or whatever. So Yeah, so you're saying, yeah, I think they'll be an interesting player as well. Peralta, some of the bats I would move. But I will say that, like, Paven Smith is real. Like, he's the most dangerous hitter in that lineup right now. Cattell Marte, I love him, but he's a guest hitter right now. And Eduardo Escobar is hitting tanks, but is striking out a ton, even though he's in better shape than he was last year. Like he's on the, on the decline clearly. And now I do really think they have something in Pavin Smith and Josh Rojas is a piece. I think Carson Kelly is an above average major leaguer. Carson Kelly's good. Yep. He's another one who's been hurt. Carson Kelly. I saw rehabbing in an extended game and he hit a, he hit a huge tank off of some Rockies guy and didn't even run the bases. Just like got halfway down the first base and just tailed back into the dugout. And one of the kids for Colorado who was charting was just like, man, I can't wait till I'm a big leaguer and get to do stuff like that. Like, you have to run. It's like, yeah, it's hot as hell out here. And Carson Kelly's just like, yeah. I hit, I, Carson Kelly made it so that the next time I went to the field, I parked in a different place. Like I parked because the parking lot for the uh, D-backs extended is like out past the left field wall. And Mark Trumbo, Mark Trumbo rehabbing a couple years ago, did hit my car with the ball. It's a collector's item now. All right, let's talk about some of the sticky stuff because it feels it's obligatory. And I will start by saying that the area of this controversy that I feel the most comfortable discussing is mostly like through using the high speed camera to see the ball spinning out of guy's hands very close, very slow has taught me a lot of stuff. And watching the pitchers, like really watching the pitchers between pitches. So as I'm sitting here right now, I got the Marlins and the Cardinals on and Sandy Alcantara is, you know, between pitches and he's rubbing his fingers on his his butt and, you know, his thumb is slipping past his his belt and, you know, like stuff like that. Basically watching pitchers like you would a close-up magician to see what it is they're – how they're applying this stuff has been interesting for the last little bit. And I'll say that like – I think the players, this is just the thing the players should decide. It feels like a thing MLB wants to decide because of the way they're trying to like dial play around to fit an aesthetic that they think is more interesting to watch. 
But ultimately, it's just a thing. I think the players, hitters, and pitchers together should like decide what to do about. It feels like the answer to that question would be quit using this like industrial strength nonsense and stick to some of these tried and true methods that weren't tested in a lab so that you have a grip on the baseball that you're comfortable with and are also not imparting like unhittable movement on the ball. I mean, I totally agree. And I have to imagine that that's where we're going to get in the end because that's what for a lot of baseball's history and also for for a lot of Major League Baseball's history and also a lot of baseball across the world, that's basically what happens. Pitchers can grip the ball because the ball isn't a weird cue ball that is covered in dust that's made by some weird lab that keeps changing aerodynamics. And umpires come up and make sure they don't have spider tack on their hands. For whatever reason, Major League Baseball didn't do any of that. So they have a, a ball that pitchers have real trouble gripping and that's gotten a lot worse in recent years. I mean, that is basically not up for debate unless you think that every pitcher uh, is just in on a conspiracy to pretend the ball is variable and hard to grip, which doesn't seem likely to me. But then they also weren't enforcing anything. And so you ended up with this weird go use whatever you want Wild West. I feel like going to no one use anything at all is bad too. And that they'll probably end up either fixing the ball or pitchers basically getting another wink, wink, nudge, nudge ability to use sunscreen and rosin together. But I feel like the intermediate state that we're at now is just not going to be great. Yeah. And like, that's one of those things where I just defer to the players that I believe Tyler Glass now when he says that after a start where he quit using stuff cold turkey, that he felt sore in strange places. By the way, what a gorgeous human being Tyler Glass now is. It's true. But like... I mean, you could quibble with his decision to do this. <laughs> like, I don't know. I would have preferred to have him experiment with how to grip the ball during the offseason rather than start doing it. In anticipation in a, of in a, a thing like this, though? I don't know. Or like do it in a bullpen instead of in the game. No one was going to bust him for sunscreen and rosin last week. Going to the D-backs games, I've also seen the guy, and I've shot video of him, who's the ball checker. Not like a turn your head and cough type thing. Like the bat boy gets a foul ball or a ball that has like spiked in the right. dirt and will bring it back over. And this guy will take the ball and he'll put a little sticker on it and then he'll write something down on a clipboard. And then the ball goes in like a mesh bag like you'd have soccer balls in or whatever. It's just this giant. It's like as if he had like fish stringing off the back of a boat, except they're these baseballs with these little label stickers on them. And yeah, like sometimes even on the high speed, I don't know if what I'm seeing on the ball, for sure there is something on the ball, but I don't know if the pitcher put it there. Right. So like Marcus Stroman, there is one shot I have of Marcus Stroman throwing a sinker where there is clearly a quarter sized brown spot on the baseball and then in every other slow-mo clip I have of him from that game, and I've got like a couple dozen, there's nothing. There's nothing at all. So did the ball, you know, did the catcher's thumb have have dirt on it when he threw the ball back to Stroman? Like, there are lots of plausible explanations for some of the stuff that I have on the high-speed camera. And I just think that if you watch the guys with real focus and don't like get bored between pitches and just watch as much of the pitcher as you can between pitches, like Jack Lighter's thumb, like these guys just don't have to tuck their shirts in after every pitch, you know, like these guys who are quote unquote tucking their shirts in with their thumb are applying something to their thumb. I think it's probably something that yeah. slips the ball off their thumb, not something that grips the ball with their thumb. 
I don't know if you uh, if you saw Adam Wainwright's discussion of uh, his no presence on the list of people who had bought uh, sticky substances from the Angels, the, the bullpen guy, and he was just incredibly frank about it. He said, "I did it. Good. I tried it for six or seven days. It was really annoying. You had to apply it repeatedly. It had to be on your glove, and you had to put it on your fingers after every pitch. And I got tired of doing that." And also, like Adam Wainwright's got a dirty Snapdragon curveball that hasn't aged at all. Yeah, and it seems like he kind of just gave up on it after trying it once and, was, and thinking, this is a lot of work. And it really is a lot of work. If you, I mean, Tony Adams, the guy who charted the Astros banging scheme initially, <laughs> fun to say, even now, <laughs> just did some charting of Trevor Bauer. And when he has the same ball, he would go to his glove 5% of the time. And when he got a new ball, he would go to his glove 76% of the time. <laughs> it's like, well... I mean, it could just be random. That's cool. I did not see that piece, but that's the type of that's the type of thing that I'm really into. Is like, yeah, what are the situations? What are sort of the meta and sort of if you chop up, if you're taking like another um, reductive approach to understanding when it's it's occurring, it would be interesting to me to note like, all right, look, let's say, okay, I'm Trevor Bauer. Bauer, by the way, doesn't his thumb seems to go into the heel of his glove and. Mm-hmm. The piece that you wrote about his spin rate explosion was late 2018, right? Uh, or was it late 19? Look that up. So that's that was at the D-backs. I was there, and I have a couple dozen high-speed clips from that outing. It was late 19 because it was when he was on the Reds. Okay. Well, anyway, I was there. And so if people yeah. go to YouTube, the Trevor Bauer like pitch mechanics and grips and stuff on YouTube on our Fangraphs page thing, that's from that outing. And I've got another couple dozen clips. And like, yeah, there is stuff on the ball sometimes. I went back recently and watched that outing to see if he's – if indeed this is like the first time he was doing it, if he's sloppy about hiding it. And he's not. Like he's already pretty good at like being deceptive basically. And a lot of guys, they'll turn their back to the umpire and walk around the back of the mound. And then they'll you'll see them do stuff with like their back turned to the hitter of the umpire – especially from the center field camera, they'll be, you know, putting their thumb in places and whatever. But I think there are probably times when you can do it selectively. You can say, all right, look, it's a full count. I want to throw my fastball here. I want it to have a little extra hop and then apply and not do it so consistent. Like, why is it that you have to do it all the time? It's almost as if, you know, moderation is was key here. Maybe if the pitchers had been doing it in moderation, people would not have noticed and focus on the times of the game when there's big time leverage and and that's when you want to do your shenanigans because i know it would make it a lot harder for me to to detect visually that shenanigans are going on if i didn't have a trial after every pitch if i couldn't just go like all right he threw another pitch let's see what he does like over and over and over the problem with that is that it would be a lot easier to pick up you know with the data if (laughs) every time that you have a high leverage fastball it suddenly has 300 extra rpms you'd be like oh okay cool i'm gonna go out and check his glove i guess i guess if you could I guess now the thing to look is, all right, chop it up that way. Is there already some evidence that this is a thing that is going on then? Like if it were so easy to detect that, then wouldn't we have just seen that already? There's variation pitch to pitch anyway. So, all right. So like big variation. Yesterday, there were two pitchers, Humberto Castellanos with the D-backs and Casey Mize with the Tigers, people know where he plays, <laughs> who were asked, hey, they came out for from the bullpen. Mize, I guess it was probably at the beginning of his start. Uh, yeah, I think Mize's was after an inning. The umpires were like, hey, you got to change gloves. 
And the reason that we were given publicly is the glove is too light. I don't know if that has anything to do with this. It sure looks that way. But Mize was like, hey, my, they said my glove was too light. Yeah. And like I looked, you know, at Mize's data. He threw his first inning. I looked at the, the data from inning number one and then the, the data from innings two and three. And I don't know, like there wasn't a change there or anything like that. So I don't know. This is it's just a big whole mess. Baseball's awesome. Like the guys who play it are really good at it. And they blow me away every time. Even the D-backs, like to get in and see the D-backs who are bad is still like, holy crap, Paven Smith is really good. Ketel Marte is unbelievable. Look at Nick Ahmed play defense. Like Josh Rojas has, he's one of those red-ass guys who you love when he's on your team and you hate him when he's on the other team. Like, But he's a real piece. And they're good players on this terrible team, and it's amazing. And this is all anyone wants to talk about. Sandy Alcantara shoved today. He's awesome too. And like, does anyone care? No, this is just the type of thing that we're having to navigate for whatever reason. Like, I think, I do think that we're to blame to some extent for this, right? Because it's like, you can't not cover it. You can't ignore it. But also people in the media do have incentive to lean into this content because salaciousness just does better. And it is a thing like it's hard to find, strike the right balance between saying like, hey, you know, all these Matt Chapman's getting hot and Matt Olson is is has been hot for a while and you know, these two are awesome. Like writing about that versus writing about this uh scandal is like, you know, it's night and day in terms of audience engagement. My mom knows about sticky stuff, but she doesn't know about Yeah, Olsen. let me tell you this. I was planning on writing about the best bunts of the year so far for today. Awesome. And instead I wrote about the crackdown on foreign substances, and I'll tell you which one I'd rather write, the bunts, and I'll tell you which one will get more hits, the foreign substances. But yeah, it's definitely like people should know that when you hear media members go like, here's MLB again doing this thing where they've made the story impossibly somehow worse than it needed to be, and it's like, yeah, but also that's good for you. Like, you're a national baseball writer at a giant contest. You know, we are those people too. Right. I wouldn't right. say yeah, we're- Yeah, the royal you. Yeah, the I wouldn't say we're necessarily as complicit. I wasn't writing think pieces about how something needed to be done about this and who's to blame everyone. Uh. It's one of those things where like we should try to be quicker to put it to bet because I agree with people when they're like, yeah, this is bad that this is another smear and that MLB finds a way of like making this worse. They're just like picking their scabs constantly. Yeah. And yeah, but also that's our incentive in the media especially like when you're pumping your content through social media is like to lean into that stuff and that's not the best either so all right let's talk about how much how much MLB draft stuff could you possibly care about what is what is your level of engagement with the draft what are some of the things that a month away you know and or are interested in discussing about the upcoming draft so i'm interested in whether like, Lighter and Rocker are as good as I think they are. I'm interested in basically what's going to happen at the top of the draft, whether teams are going to take a bunch of high school people who I've never heard of. And, I mean, I've kind of heard of them. I've read your guys' mock draft, but kind of goes in one ear and out the other until I've seen them play or, like, watch right. more video of it or something like that. So, that, but that idea, like, what's going to happen? Will the college pitchers or the high school position players get the better of the top of this draft is interesting to me. I, I want to see how short of a high school position player can be drafted first overall, or at least top five yeah. or so, and that's kind of it. 
The answer to your Vanderbilt pitcher question is probably not. Like they're probably not that good. They're both nice. Rocker especially, and this is reflected in the mock, and some of the feedback that Kevin and I, especially me, have mm-hmm. gotten since the mock posted is people in baseball tend to think that the both the Vandy arms and Rocker, who we have falling like to the Royals and as far as the Nationals, yeah. will just go. like an, Even if it means just an owner coming in and being like, hey, why is – Kamar Rocker still there. Like, take him. Right. People just think that's as likely as it is that he has a precipitous t- decline in the draft because what you get with him, inarguably, is a is a smidgen of volatility. That this is a guy who, towards the end of his senior spring in high school, his velo and his stuff started to slip. And then he had an awesome freshman year. Well, early in his freshman year was not awesome. But then late in his freshman year was awesome. And then we had basically no 2020. And then he comes out early in 21 and is awesome. And then his stuff starts to slip again. So now it's like, you know, inarguably a piece of what you're getting when you draft him is this roller coaster he's been on. And so that in my eyes and in Kevin's eyes to an extent slips him behind just from a talent perspective, that top tier of player where lighter feels more stable uh, his fastball shape is more – we're more comfortable with that. The high school shortstops feel, you know, like they're about as risky but have more – like we would just rather have the position player in, in that case. So like Jordan Lawler from Texas, uh, Marcelo Meyer from the San Diego area, Chula Vista, and Khalil Watson from North Carolina, who's like the most explosive of the three but definitely the riskiest. We would just rather have those three guys. Lighter is not like on the Strasburg. Le- He's not even on the Casey Mize level in terms of stuff. Mize is secondary. Mize is secondary stuff, way better than Lighter's secondary stuff. Lighter's fastball has has better utility just because it's that modern power pitcher fastball. Lighter's slightly undersized. He's about six one and gets way down the mound, so it's got that gorgeous flat angle. And he's 94 to 97 now, so he's thrown harder since high school. And the arrow has just been pointing up for him the whole time. You know, he's fine. He's a nice piece. I have lighter behind the group of college arms that went very early in last year's draft. So, like, Asa Lacey, stuff is better than lighters. Max Meyer, slider is definitely better than lighters. Fastball shape is suboptimal, throws harder, is more athletic, you know, about the same body. Uh, those two are close. So close, yeah. But like that's where lighter sort of fits in the general top of the draft college arm continuum, and why I think that rocker slides behind that now. But yeah, at some point, whether it's at, I don't think it'll be five. With it's it, when you just talk through it, it's like okay, if the pirates are likely to cut a deal as big a deal they can at one, that's probably not going to be with either of the two Vandy kids you know, who have former pro athlete parents and like want for nothing, you know, they're not the ones who who are going to go, ah, shucks, let's just take the money. Right. So, and especially the lighter family, when he was coming out of high school, they're like, the Yankees, Mets, or Phillies can have us at, you know, cost and everybody else is paying retail. And so- Because the Mets are such a good place to develop pitching. I don't remember if it was specifically those. It was. It was some combination of those three. And then, yeah, like these are the traditional Vanderbilt family. So we, maybe we have a Mark Appel situation brew if one of them actually does fall in a significant way. But like the Pirates are likely to cut a deal at one and it's just not likely to be with either of the Vandy arms. And what crystallizes immediately behind them is going to help 
influence who they end up taking because if you evaluate the high school shortstops that I just mentioned and Henry Davis, the Louisville catcher, who is like really isn't a great catcher but can throw, huge, huge power and less swing and miss concern than like Joey Bart coming out of Georgia Tech. And Bart was a better defender but definitely had swing and miss problems coming out of Tech and went second in his draft. Like Henry Davis is just a better hitter than Joey Bart. Joey Bart felt... Like, uh, no one expected him to go second in the draft a year before the draft, right? No, not at that point. Definitely the best catcher in a given draft is likely to, the college catchers are likely to come off in the top 10, in like the 10 to 15 range at worst. Yeah, that seems like a newish thing. But it's just, you know, that position, the utility, or rather the, like the inventory across baseball at that position is so horrible that like, even if you Zanino... It's good. You know, Mike Zanino's good, but he's not. When you look at his numbers, you're like, this guy went second in the draft. And it's like, yeah, but he plays this position where everybody is bad. So then the other thing that's going to be interesting with the draft is like, okay, remember we only had a five-round draft last year. And a bunch of kids went back to school. And a bunch of them ended up at junior colleges and transferred and whatever. So there's like a bunch of players who left Vanderbilt or, or Tennessee or other big programs to go to a smaller one like Charlotte or Georgia Tech or Virginia Tech, and their numbers are good, but they're in a worse conference and we have like one-year sample of data. What do you do with those guys? Then you have the, you know, okay, is there a glut of college players because we only had five rounds and guys like Andrew Abbott at Virginia could have been drafted last year and wasn't. His numbers are fantastic. Lefty with two good breaking balls and fastball carry. Not that hard a fastball, but has the traits. Matthew Nelson at Florida State, he's 22 and a half, but he's a viable defensive catcher who has 23 bombs uh, and is among the league leaders in Division I. Where does that guy go? So you have a bunch of guys like that where basically like with Cody Hosey a couple of years ago at Tulane and uh, Brent Rooker a couple of years ago that like there are just a bunch of guys like that in this year's draft. How do teams handle that? Are we going to see some more seniors cutting deals early so that teams can go over slot later. Tanner Allen at uh, Mississippi State was the SEC player of the year as a senior. He has a terrible approach, but he's pretty tooled up. Does that guy get cut early so that teams can do high school guys later? Jackson Glenn, a second baseman at Dallas Baptist is another guy like that where if you look at his numbers and you're like, yo, this dude is like a well-rounded offensive player who plays second base and has like a track record of, of performing. Is he all that different than like Justin Foscue coming out of Mississippi State? And you're like, oh, he's a senior. Like, do you take this guy in the comp for 600K, 700K, and then like have some fun later in the draft? I I think there's going to be some interesting stuff like that that we won't hear about teams discussing at all or until like right before the day because you want to keep playing that stuff close to the vest. Why why do you mention the short high schooler thing? Is there like a guy who specifically you're curious about? Is Watson? Uh, Yes, short Watson. Yeah, man, he's a little stick of dynamite. Like, he's just, you know, all that stuff. Twitch, bat speed. If you watch this kid swing and then go watch Jordan Lawler swing, it's totally different. I like Lawler a lot and think he's a nice, instinctive, well-rounded player who's going to play shortstop and hit for enough contact to be a perfectly fine everyday shortstop. And Khalil Watson is like, wowzer. (laughs) Like... So much power for how how small he is. And I love it because I'm pretty confident that you're not going to beat this kid with Velo. 
Good luck making a fastball mistake against this kid. Like you have no margin for error. I don't care how hard you throw, but he has a hard time laying off of breaking balls from last summer. So it's like jazz. It's like drafting jazz chisel, basically. Like it is a dice roll, but also he has a chance to become the type of player who you can't acquire if you wanted to. Will he be able to play shortstop? That's a. Uh... I think it's more likely he's at second base, just because of arm utility. He's not a stick his foot in the ground, you know, backhand a ball in the five six hole and hose you. He's not going to do that. He can make plays like Paul DeYoung, you know, moving from right to left. He can right. do that, but his arm utility has a hole. And I don't know what you do with that. Like there are some teams for sure who don't seem to care about that and can figure like we'll put him in a, in a position that that doesn't matter as much. And I think that that can be done. But yeah, I think you run him out there at shortstop and see what happens. But just watching him compared to the other kids, he's a second baseman. I just think that's interesting to imagine a team. I just picture the the high school infield prospects that get taken as these, you know, like your class, your article on like the shortstop frame, right? They're like... Right. 6-2 and they've got like just the right amount of like shoulder width and everything to where it looks like they won't get too big but they will be like tall enough and like stick at the position and he's like very small it's interesting to and there's just not much performance record because there can't be he's, he's a high schooler it'd be an interesting uh kind of gamble at the top of the draft in a way that i don't really know teams do he's a high schooler who lost his his junior year Right. He's a high schooler who lost his junior year and generated less summer data because of COVID. Yes, I think that would be a very interesting pick. And it seems like someone's going to take him early. Yeah, his so this Watson has, you know, his name is first mentioned at two, but there's there's maybe some, there's a little bit of, of red herring vibe around this because not that the Rangers are like, yeah, we'll tell people that we like Khalil Watson and it'll put them off the real scent. It's like, no, Khalil Watson's season is still going, whereas Jordan Lawler's has been done for a month. So, like, of course, people have stopped talking about Jordan Lawler and been seen getting in there to get a look at Khalil Watson because, like, he's still playing. Same with Joe Mack, high school catcher from Buffalo, Colson Montgomery, shortstop from Indiana. Brody Brecht is a name that's not on the board yet, but might soon be. This is a two-sport guy committed to Iowa to play football and baseball. Who he he plays high school baseball in Iowa, and so they're still playing because they start their season later than they do in Texas and Florida and SoCal. And so now, because the draft hasn't happened yet, although ordinarily it would, this guy's like got a chance suddenly to go in the comp round because it's like six four frame with ninety four to ninety eight. And that's just what the kid sits. And it's, you know, a division one football athlete. So you get a look at him and you're like, oh my God, give this guy to our player development group, please. And so now all of a sudden there's like this extra month for guys to pop up and look sexy in a bullpen or impress a team at a private workout that they wouldn't have had time to do ordinarily. Like all sorts of stuff from the draft moving back a month is going to, it's throwing interesting nuance into the process. And then, you know, the day of the draft is like the futures game and the first day of the draft. So every prospect writer on earth is going <laughs> to like we're all at risk of, of passing out at some point that day just from, you know, running around Colorado, basically trying to see everything that we can. This is not, you know, quite as important as who the best players in the draft are, but there's some good names this year. Who are the, who are the I names? I like Colton Kowser a lot. Yeah. That's a solid name. Jackson Job. Those are right next to each other in your mock. Those are both excellent names. I mean, Marcelo Meyer is a great name. 
I'm getting to the point where there's, I'm starting to have the player name overload, especially as so many of them overlap. Like, I can't do another Logan Allen. There are the two Logan Allens. You just wait till there's an Allen Logan. Well, there's there are the many Logan Allens, and then on Mississippi State, there's a Tanner Allen and a Logan Tanner. Ooh, that's very similar. And Mississippi State's got, and they have a Lane Forsyth, who I don't know if he's related to Logan or not. And I think they have another. Anyway, I just love when Braylon Skinner plays for Mississippi State because I don't call him Logan Allen. <laughs> <laughs> and like there's a Rowdy Jordan and a Cameron Jordan. And Jordan Cameron. And you're right. Like there's a Cameron Jordan and there's also another Cameron Jordan and a Jordan Cameron. And this Cameron Jordan spells his name differently. Anyway, like I, this stuff is definitely starting to cross my wires a little bit to like my grandfather – you know, he's like, oh, did you watch Paul Pierce and Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett and Bobby Abreu for the <laughs> Phillies? And I'm just like, oh, Pop, that's not how you say their names. And he's just like, I'm old. Like, this is just going to happen. And I'm like, no, it really shouldn't. Yeah, but, but we'll no, it's just enough. starting to happen. So do you have anything else you want to say your piece about before we split? Uh, one thing that I think will be interesting to think about this offseason, I don't think it's going to change how teams approach the trade deadline, but... I wonder if teams are going to trade for a guy who they think they're going to have three years before he gets on the 40-man and then seven years of team control and the CBA gets updated and it's like, oh, we just traded for five years of team control and the league minimum's higher now. I wonder if there's going to be some trades that get made at this deadline that we look at the new CBA and are like, oh, wow, that trade got a lot worse. Yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Man, I wonder if apprehension around that will make it a less active run. I think that the the... NL wildcard dynamics probably make that more likely to be the case as well. That like that there's not much of a race, yeah. It's just not going to be much of an NL wildcard race. Like you either win the NL East or you if don't. If the Braves kind of get back, yeah, then it's more interesting. I don't know. But Soroka yeah. seems like you just can't rely on yeah. him. Some of the other arms just haven't really. This is just part of it. It's just so much attrition with the arms. Even as good as Bryce Wilson looked for a stretch, there have been others when it's not that way. Kyle Wright, same thing. Tukey is, you know, just a reliever. Like, he's an up-down reliever, basically. So, yeah, like, the Braves situation is fascinating because... They might just score six runs a game, though, and then, you know. Right, like, they're just so talented, and it's just not... Haven't been able to separate themselves from, like, the Phillies feel super frustrating and are still just kind of hanging around. Because right. Wheeler's put them on their back and, like, Segura's hitting. This is what everyone thought Zach Wheeler would turn into if it worked out well. So, okay, yeah, interesting. Well, people should look out for Ben and Kevin combining on a trade value ranking in the near future. Indeed. They should look out for what will be my how does the 40-man crunch going to impact this year's trade season piece, which I do every year and love to do. I'm going to have a piece up soon on... Jake DeGrom and Marcus Stroman and Shohei Otani and like watching them with the player evaluation I in mind, uh, similar to the way I did that with Corey Kluber a couple years ago, because you go watch a high school kid and you're like, the area guys are like, hey, yeah, this Daniel Avidia, he might end up going and it's like 88 to 92 with some change up feel and a medium frame. And then you go to a big league game and Jacob DeGrom is just blowing <laughs> 101 past big leaguers with impunity and it's like why do i why did i go see daniel avidia jacob the pretty good he's awesome but uh do you have anything you want to plug before we go then that's about it uh trade value series is going to be exciting and you can catch my work on fangraphs all the time yeah 
And folks should join me and probably a few other Fangraphs people for a watch-along stream of the Rangers and A's game on Tuesday, June 22nd. Probably be joined by some other Fangraphs writers for that stream if people want to join me. I'll also have had the, the A's prospect list out at that point, so we'll be discussing that as well as the state of the NL West and the game that's happening right in front of us. So thanks for joining us on another episode of Fangraphs Audio. For Ben Clemens, I'm Eric Longenhagen. Have a great weekend, everybody. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guests on this segment are Zach Beirudi, broadcaster for the Reno Aces, the AAA affiliate of the Arizona Diamondbacks, and Alex Cohen, broadcaster for the Iowa Cubs, the AAA affiliate of the Chicago Cubs. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really, <laughs> really appreciate it. Yeah, you're broadcasters. You can jump right in and greet me right back. <laughs> <laughs> I, we, well, we're broadcasters, and we don't want to step on anyone else's toes. So that's yeah. Number we're, one. we're letting the podcast breathe. Come on. <laughs> hey, I, I have heard that that a good broadcaster is always going to let the game breathe at, in the right moments. Absolutely. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, Zach, I don't think you really got a chance to breathe much the, the last few days. I decided I wanted to have you on because I looked at a couple of Reno box scores. You just played a series in Las Vegas, and not only were the daytime temperatures each day like 105, 110, whatever, the final scores I wrote down were what, 18 to 9, 15 to 7, 16 to 4, and 21 to 16? That's Indeed. insane. <laughs> Yeah, it was a, it was a new definition of madness for sure. I mean, what is it like to broadcast baseball games with football scores and a hundred degree heat? You know, the heat is is one thing because I can't really feel it in the booth, especially in Vegas. The AC really pumps; they don't turn it off. So for me, I wasn't feeling the heat so much as as I'm sure the guys were. As far as calling a game like that, uh, it's just it's just different. It takes on kind of a life of its own, and I think at a certain point, at a certain threshold, like you cross almost into silliness, and you're you're expecting like five runs an inning for the re- remainder of the game, uh, which we kind of almost had. So uh, yeah, it, it just kind of takes on this weird life, and uh, and I've called plenty of high scoring games. I mean, in the Cal League for years, and in Lancaster and High Desert, but. Uh, this one, this one might have taken the cakes, considering that uh, Vegas had an 11 run inning and then lost by five. That's that's just nuts. <laughs> well, Alex, you probably have not called any games quite like that this year. Not quite, not quite. But you know, being in the PCL 2018, 2019, uh, we had a couple games, especially in Reno. Uh, that were high scoring. I I don't know to that capacity, but but I was also in the Pioneer League rookie ball 2015 when my first road game. It was 25 to 17, and the game featured 11 home runs. So so I got a little bit of a gist <laughs> of that. Not not with the comeback fashion, but definitely high scoring games, lower level minor league baseball uh, with the altitude. I mean, it certainly uh, makes things very interesting. And and Zach, especially for you with the uh, coming off of a travel day as well. Yeah, it definitely adds to adds to the intrigue, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know how to like place it because because my like in my heart of hearts I want it to be you know I, I enjoy calling baseball games that are like the two to nothing pitchers duels and and you know getting really into the nitty gritty of the strategy and I feel like all of that kind of goes out the window in a game like twenty one to sixteen. You know, <laughs> you you could still talk about the game and it you know, in proper context, but it's, it just, it's different. It's just different. And, uh, you're, you got to turn on kind of a different part of your brain to, to get there by the end of the game.
Yeah, I kept expecting, Zach, after the scores of those first few games to see a one nothing game because that's the way baseball tends to work. I was at Fenway Park a few nights ago where the Blue Jays had eight home runs and scored 18 runs against the Red Sox. And the next night was one nothing going into the ninth and ended up 2-1. So it's... You can't predict baseball, I think, is is the phrase. <laughs> yep, I was expecting the uh, I was expecting something like that in the finale last night on uh, on Tuesday night. We got sixteen to four, so it wasn't it wasn't quite one nothing going into the ninth, but yeah, it was more of the same. Yeah, I saw uh, Zach a tweet that you had. I think it was during the twenty one sixteen game that you had planned to have a sparkling <laughs> water after the game, and, and instead yeah, I saw of that no- too. Yeah. yeah in, instead of your normal post game beer, but that probably wasn't going to happen. So, yeah. so what? So what did happen? Uh, I went. I went down to our uh, downstairs and I grabbed a couple of beers for the walk home uh, to the the hotel. You know, there's times on the road you're like, all right, like I'm gonna just you know take a night and I'm gonna have a few sparkling waters. You know, you just feel like it's something good to do for yourself. And then you get, you know, you get deep into this game and it's like a it's six to one and then it's twelve to six by the bottom of the third and you're like, oh man, like this is. You know, I'm I'm gonna I don't know when I'm getting out of here, but I'm gonna need to find some sort of chill afterwards. And I was like, that's that's not gonna come in the form of a sparkling water. So yeah, yeah. Hopefully you mix that with uh with a throat lozenger tent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, right. Uh, actually, the voice was was warmed up. I mean, Alex, you know, like you get you get deep into those games, and you can go. I could have gone for another four hours. It was just like the mental capacity, the bandwidth to handle anymore uh, yeah. was was getting low. Yeah, like words won't mix together. You're just like, all right, I'm just going to call a home run because naturally that home run will come in a 21 to 16 game. But yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, it's not broadcasting a game like that. Like in the moment, it's after the fact. It's the next morning. We're just like, man, I'm exhausted. It feels like I've worked out for two and a half hours. Well, not in reality. You just called a four hour game. So. Well, I, I slept till I slept till 11 a.m. the next day. I did not set an alarm after the 21-16 game. I was like, all right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna sleep however long I sleep, you know. And I have a, a six month old at home, so I try and get it where I can. And like, I normally I'd wake up at some point in the night, you know, or morning, and I'd fall back to sleep. But I did not wake up once. You know, I slept right through till 11, which never ever ever happens. So that that kind of gives you an idea. But like to touch on something else, you guys were talking about. The go-ahead two-run homer that Matt Lipka hit in the eighth inning. You know, if, if he, I haven't gone back and listened to the call, but I, I know how I called it. And the, the the ball leaves, and I couldn't process what the score was. <laughs> like it was, it was just, it was so unnatural for me to say. And the Aces take a 15 to 14 lead. Like I couldn't, I couldn't spit it out. And I think I even said as much. Like maybe uh, 30 seconds later, I said, "My brain can't even process that." Like. And and it, it was in the call, you know, because how often do you call a home run and then you say, and it's 15 to 14. Like, that's just silly. <laughs> Only time I make that call is in my dream, Zach. <laughs> exactly. Yep. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah, I think that Josh Van Meter is probably dreaming this week. I took a look at what he did in this series. I think he's 11 for his last 23 with four home runs. So he's he's raking. Yeah, that's that's one of the that for me was uh, was one A. That was the lead from that game from an Aces perspective. Was Josh Van Meter gets up seven times and and goes three for three with two homers, a single, and four walks. And I don't know if I've ever seen a player reach base safely seven times in a game. I've seen a player strike out seven times in a game, which is a, which is a California League record. But I've never I don't think I've ever seen a player reach base seven times. I think the most impressive 
aspect of that was Van Meter homered in his first two at-bats, which was innings one and two, and then took three straight walks after that. So, like, normally a guy would hit two home runs out of the gate and, and be trying to do it every single time after that. But he was disciplined and kept that solid approach, and it was a, it was a special night for him. Yeah, Zach, naturally, uh, you had that game, and and now you're going to have, like, three two-to-nothing games in a row, or, like, three, like, three-to-two, <laughs> like, real barn burners with 12 combined hits. Oh, for sure. I'm, I'm, and I'm ready for it. I'm here for that. Like, that would be nice to actually have a, a, a real, a real baseball game. Yeah, the Van Meter homering a few times early has me thinking back to a game that I was at at Fenway Park against the, I guess it was still the Florida Marlins, where the Red Sox scored 14 in the top of the first. I remember that. I, I remember that game clear as day. Yep. It it was crazy. I'm pretty certain that Johnny Damon had a single, double, and a triple in the first inning alone and did not hit for the cycle that day. It was like 03, right? Somewhere around there, circa 03, 04, that uh, time frame? I think it was 03, yes. Okay, Actually, yeah. And I, right, you are a Massachusetts native, of course. Worcester Mass, baby. Yeah, the home of the Worcester Red Sox. Yes. You know, the old Pawtucket Red Sox, so... Yeah. I know that most every minor league broadcaster would love, you know, to work in the major leagues, but I think if you ever change teams at the AAA level, that might be a nice home for you. It would. It would. But I, I tell you what, I, I left Boston, I think it was an O, it was late 05, beginning of 06. And I thought to myself, I'll be back in a couple of years. You know, I can't wait. I'm an East Coaster and I'm like Boston to the core, you know. And having been on the West Coast now for, you know, 16 years or however long it's been, like, I really love it here. It's a, it's a cool, it's a cool vibe. It's just different. And I don't know if I can ever live in the cold and do winter again like that. Sure you could. And you know what happens to broadcasters who call games for, for that team. I know what happens to <laughs> broadcasters who call games for the Pawtucket Red Sox. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. This, this, this may be a changing of the tide. <laughs> yeah, for listeners who don't know, I think there are six or eight big league broadcasters right now who used to call games for the Pawsox. Yeah, great, great <laughs> lineage. Yeah, that's where, and I mean, Alex will attest, like, that's where, you know, for a time, like, we all wanted to be. That was, that oh, was yeah. the place. No, we were applying for jobs, and you saw that Paul Tuckett well, yeah, had an opening because, you know, Jeff Levering goes up to the big leagues, or Adam Goldsmith goes up to the big leagues. We were sending in our demos that day, and they wanted it on a CD still, yep. not, you know, in a form of um, SoundCloud links. So yep. they were old school, but they were, uh, yeah, they were the top of the totem pole when it came to minor league baseball jobs and broadcasting jobs, for that matter. And I appreciate the method that they that they did. And I read the article in the Athletic a few weeks back. But like, I I really appreciate how authentic they wanted they wanted it to be uh, the process. You know, like it was there was no nepotism involved. It was basically who who sounds the best and to to a great sample size of our front office. And I think that's that's a pretty awesome way to to choose the next voice of your club. No, I think it is. I mean, there's just such a small margin of, you know, who's better and who's not when you get to broadcasters at any level, whether it's yep. A-ball, whether it's double-A, whether it's triple-A. I mean, you can get a core group of five, ten fans in a room, and one person could say, you know, Zach Bayrudi's the best. One person could say Alex Cohen's the best. And the next person could say that, you know, Adam Goldsmith is the best. I mean, the only time when you don't do that is when Vin Scully comes on the air. You're like, <laughs> okay. Or Pat Hughes or Ken Korak. And you're just like, all right. I mean, these guys are just so much better than everybody else you know John Miller yeah we're we're not that I mean I think that we all have strengths and weaknesses but you know you could be listening to an A-ball broadcaster Dave and say man this guy is really good he should be in AAA or listening to a AAA guy and saying oh man he should be in the big leagues and there's just such a small margin of difference between those guys and that's a great part about our industry and how competitive it is 
for sure. Speaking of Ken Korak, like most broadcasters, he will occasionally miss a day or two here and there. Two years ago, he had a, a fill-in for a game that I guess is pretty good. Did he? <laughs> I, I'm queuing you up, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh that was one of the the greatest days of my life and i think it was probably made more great by the fact that ken actually called me that morning um to congratulate me and, and to, to let me know that he knew i was going to do a great job and i thought that was uh that was so big league of him and it, it was i'll never forget like i went on a run because i it, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning and i i was you know, couldn't help myself. It was like this exciting day in my life and my career. And so I, I started to go out for a run. I was in San Jose at my buddy's house and my phone rang right as I was getting started. And it like when Ken Korak's name pops up on your phone, like you get, you stop you get your the, run. the feeling in your stomach, you know, you stop. So, you, stop your run. you know, I, I talked with him and we talked for a few minutes and uh, he just wanted to congratulate me and tell me that I deserved to be there and, and wish me well. And that was, that was huge. I'll never forget that. That's awesome. Alex, have you had a big league opportunity yet? I have never had a big league opportunity. I've done a couple uh, big league spring training games in 2018 and 2019, but no big league opportunity yet. And I'm still waiting for that call from a Ken Korak and say, hey, yo, you'll do a great job. And I, will, I, I won't say that I'll stop a run because I haven't gone on a run in like the last <laughs> decade. So. Dude, wait till, wait till the morning of your first big league game. You'll need to do something to, oh, to absolutely. like, you can't just sit on the couch, you know, like you'll need to go do something. So it'll, yeah, you'll get I'll, there. I'll, I'll probably take my dog for a walk or a yacht, <laughs> but like running isn't quite in like my, my repertoire at this point in my life. So I don't think that running is in your repertoire right now because you're no. dealing, you are dealing with a, an ankle injury. I understand. I am, <laughs> you know, I wish I had a great story, but no, I was simply just uh, looking at my phone, walking down the steps and I missed a step. So oh, to say that. Dude. That I'm not in my athletic prime right now is, uh, yeah, that, that goes without saying. But it was right before one of our TV games, so it was, yeah, perfect timing. Marquee Sports Network comes in. They bring their entire contingent, and I can't walk. So, you know, naturally I have great timing. I assume you were reading fan graphs on your phone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was looking at one of your articles, and I was just diving deep into it, and I just missed a step. It happens, man. It happens. It does. Yeah, Alex, I think that you can maybe one-up Zach, though. He has done a major league game, but you have been on House Hunters. Yes. I have been, I have been on House Hunters. Um, Great episode, yeah. by the way, dude. Thanks, Great Zach. episode. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I got more press about House Hunters and you know, three days than I did when it came to broadcasting baseball in Iowa in three years. So I, I guess where I see where I fall when it, when it, when it comes to things like that. Way to rep the suburbs too. Way to stick up for the suburbs. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. More, more room for the dog. I was doing it for both of us. Yeah. So, the house is going to hold its value nicely out there. Trust me. Exactly. So no, I mean, it was a great experience. It, it was funny. Uh, my girlfriend and I, we went golfing on now one of our Monday off days uh, that the PCL doesn't have, but the rest of minor league baseball does have. And, uh, you know, we're about to tee off and want this is random golfer. And he, he had a couple drinks that day and he points at me, he goes, you. And I'm like, oh, man, what could this be? He's like, you were on House Hunters with her. I'm like, that's correct. He's like, you guys are, he's like, you guys are still together. Like, there was some element of shock involved. I'm like, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, we're, we're still dating. It's great. It's like, I love your house. I'm like, thank you. I appreciate it. So that, that, that happens about once a week. That's great. Yeah, this is a great place to segue into uh, the housing issues in minor league baseball. Housing is an issue. Travel is always an issue. I don't know if either of you want to share any good travel stories in the minor leagues. Ooh, yeah. I mean, Zach, I mean, you you bu probably have bust throughout the, the California League and had some interesting you know, bus breakdowns on I-5. And I, I think my big one was... 
in 2016 when I was in the Midwest League. And, uh, you know, it was second half of the season. Bowling Green Hot Rods are vying for a Midwest League playoff berth. Um, and they needed to really take care of business against the Lake County captains. They were going up to East Lake, Ohio, five games in four days. First game, a doubleheader because of naturally a rainout. So we leave Bowling Green, middle of the night. We're driving through East Lake, Ohio, bus breakdown. And we're about 25 minutes from our hotel. And may, maybe a little bit further, maybe, you know, 30 miles, 35 miles. You know, we're stopped on the side of the road. Three in the morning, four in the morning, nobody comes. Five in the morning, nobody comes. You know, we're, we're on the side of the highway watching the sunrise. Finally, another bus comes, picks us up at 7.30 in the morning. Meanwhile, we have a doubleheader that day. Get to the hotel at 9.30. Yeah, we sleep till 11.30. Get to the ballpark. Ended up sweeping the doubleheader, sweeping the series, and clinching a playoff berth during that last game. So, But, yeah, I mean, it, it's a pretty helpless feeling being stranded on a highway, not being able to get with uh, you know, any of the, the other buses that could come pick you up. It's pretty hopeless at that point. But, yeah, you just watch the sunrise with you know, 35 of your closest friends <laughs> on the side of the road in the middle of Ohio. And, you know, then you, you go on and win five games in four days. So that was pretty special. That's awesome, man. So I've had the bus breakdown for sure. I think we all have, right? Like, I feel like you haven't been minor league baseball unless you've had the bus breakdown. But there was one time bus broke down and I felt terrible for our guys. Uh, they were in Rancho Cucamonga. It was the day before the All-Star break. So from Rancho to Stockton, it's about, you know, six to seven hours, depending on if you stop and traffic and all that. But my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, had driven down to Rancho and we we're going to go to San Diego for the All-Star break after. So she was picking me up and I wasn't going back with the team. Well, the team's bus got a flat tire. And uh, so my, my then girlfriend and I are in San Diego just chilling, you know, kicking off the all-star break. And I get a, a text from our trainer with a picture. And he was like, our current situation right now. And it was on the side of the highway. You know, their bus had busted a tire. and They had to wait, you know, like there, there aren't readily available AAA people who come and replace bus tires. So they had to wait and everyone's all-star break except mine got off uh, to a late start. I felt <laughs> terrible because it was like they were supposed to be getting on vacation, you know, and the time is so precious and limited. And there they are on, on at a rest stop just wearing it. And I know that some of the hotels that minor league teams have stayed at over the years probably have good stories, but those may be a little bit too uh, too scary for a podcast. No, I'll tell you about the guy in High Desert that played Minesweeper in the lobby. I think he was a transient, and uh, he had a he had a dog, and he it was the Motel Six in High Desert in Hesperia. And uh, if you've never never been, it's a special place. It's uh, on in the in the desert on your way from L.A. to Vegas, like it's way out there. And oh, uh, we stayed at a Motel Six. And there was literally a guy that would sit there and play Minesweeper on the hotel's, like, quote-unquote business center at the Motel 6, like the, the computer that was out there in case you didn't have one. Uh, and he just sat there with his dog, and, like, every time you walked in, he was there. And it was, I mean, it was concerning a little bit, because you're like, who is this this rando? But, uh, you know, it was just part of the uh, the tapestry there at the uh, the Motel 6 in Hesperia. So, yeah, we've stayed at some places. It's a wide range of hotels. I mean, because there's some hotels... That are really nice. Yeah, my first year uh, broadcasting in minor league baseball was in the Southern League, and our first hotel was in Jacksonville, and it's the Jacksonville Hilton downtown rooftop oh, yeah. pool. And I'm just like, oh man, like I could get used to this. Well, our second hotel is at a city that I will not name, but yeah, we were staying at a Best Western, and I go into the hotel room, and there's a hypodermic needle sitting in the shower. <laughs> so as I said, you go from you know one road trip, which is great. I'm talking four and a half star hotel right downtown of Jacksonville. It's awesome to a city that is unnamed in a Best Western that is unnamed with a hypodermic needle greeting you in your shower. So it's a wide range. 
For sure. Uh, Zach mentioned High Desert a few minutes ago, so we should circle back to crazy minor league games because I know that High Desert was, was famous for those. Uh, yes, indeed. I, I broadcast many games in High Desert where you knew it, it could have been kind of lopsided going kind of to the late innings, but you knew that something was going to happen. And there was one game I, I remember vividly where we had Josh Reddick on a rehab assignment for like a week. He joined us for a week down there and he, he homered, you know, Stockton down to its final out. He homers. It was like a three run shot to tie it. And like, I, I just remember not being surprised, you know, because we were in High Desert. Like it was just supposed to happen that way. Uh, you're, you're there. In Lancaster, the, the game that stands out in my mind, the Ports lost 28-11 to 11, uh, to the Lancaster Jetthawks at, at the hangar one year. And someone who was smoking some dope, obviously, at, at MILB.com uh, named it the Minor League Game of the Year. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> really? Because because that was a that was a ridiculous game like a team scores 11 and loses by 17, 17 like are you kidding yeah. me like that's not that's not baseball like yeah it's an oddity like it's it's quirky in its own way and it's fun but like that's not the minor league game of the year come on there's a blown away analogy there somewhere with Lancaster in mind because it should be called they should have been called the Lancaster Jet Streams, I believe, not the Jet Hawks. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been that would have been good. Uh, the uh, their uh, Copa de la Diversión name was uh, El Viento de Lancaster, which I think means the wind. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Alex, uh, we are running out of time. We need another good story from you. All right, I'll, I'll give you a travel story, a hotel story, a, a team that I can't name and a player that I can't name. He got back after a night. You know, he, he goes to his hotel room and he he's gonna draw a bath. You know, he wants to go take a bath. He puts the water on and he ends up falling asleep on his bed and floods out the entire room and floods out the entire floor. And then the water starts seeping into the floor above it. They had to get everybody out of the hotel from those three floors. So they're just like standing on the street at two thirty in the morning, and uh, yeah, that that player um, had to woke up that morning and you know got a got a nice stern talking to by the organization, and you know just had to you know, put thirty five hundred dollars on his credit card to repair everything. Wow! At a, ra- at a random trip at a random location because uh, he wanted to draw a bath at two thirty in the morning, which is exactly what everybody wants to do at two thirty in the morning after a night at the bars. <laughs> Yeah, $3,500, so he basically forfeited yeah. his entire season's salary, probably. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's a very expensive bar tab or a nice portion of your signing bonus. So, Well, Zach, can you beat that story, or should we close up shop for the day? I will tell you, I think I, I am aware of, uh, there was a stabbing at a hotel in the California League. Uh, I don't want to get into naming the city and the hotel, but I can tell you that uh, a team that was supposed to stay there for the playoffs, uh, they had to change the visiting team hotel because there was a, uh, a stabbing there. Oh, so, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not funny, but I, I just no. I mean, it's it is what it is, you know. Like it's it's just it it happened, you know. So these are the these are the types of places that that we stayed and look like. I think part of what what baseball is trying to do is to you know, in a way, get get conditions better to where there aren't those things like to where, you know, teams aren't staying at places where these types of things happen. And, you know, maybe we can kind of get a little bit of an upgrade for for the guys, you know, because it's 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 already grueling enough to go through a long season. But to do it, you know, staying at some of these places where you got to keep your head on a swivel, you know, that kind of gets into into some stuff that you don't want to deal with. 
Yeah, amen. Nobody will disagree with that. Although I did cover though, it was the Royals Mets World Series a few years back. And I stayed in a very nice hotel in Times Square. And uh, somebody OD'd in the room next to me oh, at, uh, at 4 a.m. and was screaming in the hall. So. Oh, no. Oh, so do you know what? You expect things like that in some of the hotels that we've all stayed in. But this was a four-star hotel. So, so oh, wow. you never know. <laughs> Yeah, that's, sure. that, that, that's quite a curveball. I mean, I, I, I've i stayed in some bad hotels and you know, I've driven cross country after seasons and my car broke down in Clyde, Texas, and it was on a Sunday and a holiday. So we had to, you know, roll my car to the next, uh, you know, convenience store location, which was a gas station and a Whataburger parking lot. And I slept uh, in my trunk that day or that night, woke up at six o'clock in the morning, finally called a tow truck and they, they took it to a Jeep dealership. So, you know, it wasn't a hotel, but I did sleep in the trunk of my car in a Whataburger parking lot in the middle of Texas. Fortunately, it wasn't that hot. It was September. It could have been really bad, but the temperature was like 80 some degrees. So it was bad, but not terrible. And and Man. I think you you may have slept better in that trunk than I slept trying to get back to sleep after hearing. Yeah, I can imagine hearing that, somebody yeah. in the hallway saying, "You have to tell us what we took, or we won't be able to help you." Oh jeez, <laughs> oh, man, this this pod has really gone off the rails. Here. Yeah, <laughs> that took a left turn. Yeah, let's quit while we're behind. Zach, Alex, thank you very much for coming on, and uh, apologies to the listeners for going uh, a little bit crazy. Yeah. This is the hey, this is the stuff that people want to hear, right? Exactly. Give <laughs> give the people what they this want. Is, this and, is the uh, real stuff. Zach, I'm looking forward to hearing your one to nothing call on the PCL your next game. So that'll be fun. Uh, well, actually, you know what's funny is I'm going I'm going back to Boston. My brother's getting married this weekend, yeah. so I, I'm leaving for the next four games. So Jason Schwartz will get to do that. Oh, nice. Good for Jason. I'll, I'll let him know that he's gonna have. Yo, Chris, two hour, thirty five minute games for the next four games because you left. Oh, I, I'm I'm ready to see it. I'm gonna look at the box. I don't even want to look at the box because I know it's coming. So <laughs> that's great. Nice. All right, we are out of the box. Thanks everybody for listening to Fangrass Audio. This has been Fangrass Audio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you to Zach Bayrudi and Alex Cohen for joining us. Remember to check out that Fangraph store, and like Eric mentioned, we will be streaming on Twitch on Tuesday evening during the A's and Rangers game. Head on over to the Fangraph's homepage then to join us. Thank you for listening, happy Father's Day to all you dads, and have a good weekend.